Welcome to Counterfactual, the podcast brought to you by the Competition, Law and Foreign Investment Review section of the Canadian Bar Association. Counterfactual takes a fresh look at issues relevant to business competition and related areas of regulation and explores the real and hypothetical worlds to gain practical insights and debate policy. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Counterfactual, the podcast produced by the Competition Law and Foreign Investment Review Section of the Canadian Bar Association. My name is Ian McDonald, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Phil Harwood of Longview Communications about the ongoing evolution of the Investment Canada Act's, or ICA's, national security review powers, both in terms of their substance and in terms of how they are applied. Before we get started, a few words about our guests. Phil Harwood is an Ottawa-based partner with Longview Communications. He helps lead Longview's foreign investment practice, which specializes in navigating Investment Canada Act reviews, including national security reviews, and has advised clients on more than 30 reviews in the past four years. In addition to other high-profile roles, Phil served from 2012 to 2015 as the Policy Advisor for Fiscal and Economic Affairs to the Prime Minister, helping manage some of the most important priorities for the Government of Canada, including budget planning, tax policy, economic and industrial policy, telecom policy, government-wide operations, foreign direct investment, and cybersecurity. During his time in the Prime Minister's office, Phil was involved in a large number of Investment Canada Act processes and national security reviews, where he dealt with key players across the machinery of government. Hello, and welcome to Counterfactual. We're so glad you could join us. Between the recent and significant changes to the, the government has made and is in the process of making to the ICA and the way it will administer the ICA, and the current state of geopolitics, including the relationship between Canada and China in particular, this is an extremely exciting time to be an Investment Canada Act practitioner. In fact, it seems that almost every day there's something in the news that could potentially influence the government's approach to the administration of the Investment Canada Act in relation to Chinese investment in particular, be it surveillance balloons, the banning of TikTok on federal and, and now some provincial uh, devices, or foreign inf interference in our elections, to name just a few. In this regard, I almost feel a duty to note that today is March 10th, 2023, in case important developments occur between now and when our listeners listen to this episode. Phil, as a preliminary matter, while many, even most of our listeners will likely have a high degree of familiarity with the ICA and the NSR provisions, some may not. So could you please start with a brief overview of what the ICA is and what the uh, what its NSR powers involve? Yeah, happy to. And, and thank you, Ian, for having me uh, join you this morning. Um, hello to everybody who's listening. Uh, so, so the Investment Canada Act, as um, as many of you will know very well, uh, originally was intended as an economic uh, tool, and so the the net benefit review, which looks at at uh, economic factors, uh, had been the 
the the only thing that the act was focused on. I shouldn't say that there was cultural reviews, but primarily this was an economic uh, tool until uh, 2009 when the National Security Review was added. And, and I think it's always important to go back to why it was added, which is that at the time, the government of the day did not want to try to twist an economic review into accomplishing national security objectives um, that had happened uh, in in other jurisdictions and was viewed as not a best practice from a public policy perspective. Uh, so, so the National Security Review, which was meant to look at those um, those uh, mergers and acquisitions or, or acquisitions of control or or indirect control, as well as establishments of new businesses, um, was with, instituted. And uh, and it was a few years after that amendment that um, that it began to to be put into use. Um, so you know if you dealt with all at all with the National Security Review, there's there's really uh, three possible paths. If you can you can have a, a green light to proceed with the new business or the acquisition um, with no conditions. Uh, you can you can be told no and have that block or uh, a divestiture ordered if the if the transaction had closed um, or it can be allowed to permit with conditions so there may be uh, mitigation measures that are put in place uh, to address whatever the, the government's national security concerns are so those are really the three potential outcomes wondering if you could uh, please give us a brief summary of the evolution of the use of the nsr powers from their inception in 2009 until the end of the third quarter of of 2022 yeah, well, it's uh, it, it's uh, uh, very similar to when a large boulder starts rolling downhill. It starts slowly and then it picks up speed, and it seems like that's uh, how the the National Security Review, in particular, is is evolving, um, and not just in Canada but but globally. So, um, as I mentioned, the first few years, the National Security Review never really used, and then it was launched into its uh, its the, the, the public example of it being used um, in the early days, and uh, and system uh, internally the government had to begin to work out how it was going to do this. So, how do you how do you decide what you're going to review? What gets flagged? for the various layers of screening and ultimately what goes to a full national security review. And then how do you decide internally um, what kind of risk you can live with versus what's the level of risk that you can you can mitigate down to if you're going to say something could proceed. Um, so there were some tweaks over the years in, I believe, 2013 and 2014 um, in, the, in some omnibus uh, budget legislation that was making adjustments to the act. And those were um, important, but not really warranting their own bills. So the, the ability, for example, for the uh, minister of industry at the time to be able to communicate on if, if he or she had, has approved something to go proceed, uh, but has put conditions uh, with the support of cabinet, then can the minister explain what those are? And, uh, and it felt that that would be uh, important to be able to say. Uh, that's just an example. There were some other We'll, we'll call them loopholes. At least that's how it was viewed from a public policy perspective, just to, to tighten up in the act. Um, but it operated as a black box. I think that's it still does operate as, as a black box, but it was at its most opaque uh, during those early years. And um, uh, there was a push. I think many of you will have lived it. There was a push to give more information from the government side to help people understand what transactions are going to be told. Absolutely not versus what have a chance. 
Um, and uh, when there was a change in government, um, that push continued. And in 2016, I believe it was uh, the now current government started to say more. And so there were reports put out with some statistics. You could start to discern probably what was obvious the most about which countries were uh, were the most uh, concerning from a national security perspective. Um, then there were guidelines that were released, and those were intended to give some uh, just some trajectory, some sense, some ability to say, okay, well, these types of things would be of concern. Uh, the, that first version was very general. There were some things in the national national security guidelines which would be uh, almost all encompassing. So, you know, again, it was it was giving some guidance, but not a roadmap. And uh, and there has been evolution, obviously, on those as the government has given some more precision as to which industries are going to be of particular concern. Uh, and then and then COVID happened. And I think one of the things that uh, is important to, to note about COVID is there was a lot, uh, there were a lot of issues that were never really national security issues, I mean, at least not as people thought about them. And I'll, a great example would be masks and gloves. Nobody really thought that those would be national security issues. Suddenly, everybody, every country in the world was scrambling around trying to find these so that their healthcare systems didn't shut down. And it became a national security issue. And so new things bubbled to the surface. There were some concerns about um, opportunistic foreign investors coming in on distressed Canadian assets uh, that otherwise have, have strong underlying value, but just were, were uh, facing the distress that happened in March, April of 2020. And uh, so there were some guidelines released, um, policies about enhanced scrutiny, longer timeframes, which were really for the review to be conducted, which were really a function of the fact that the government of Canada was shifting to remote work uh, for those years. And then uh, Russia invades Ukraine. And so obviously that gets built in explicitly. I think there probably wasn't necessarily a need for an explicit policy, but there's uh, certainly no no downside to communicating proactively. And now updated national security guidelines, adding more precision I think around say critical minerals, for example, have evolved uh, to, for people to better understand uh, what the government is is thinking. And, uh, and then some significant amendments about the voluntary notice um, regime that was brought in, I think it was last year and, and now C-34, which, which brings in some really important uh, structural changes to how the National Security Review is going to be conducted once those pass. Great. Thank you uh, for, for that history of the evolution. Uh, the fourth quarter of 2022 saw multiple significant developments, including the critical minerals policy, three divestiture orders involving critical minerals investments, and a new policy of naming names when a national security review concludes with a cabinet order, and of course, the proposed amendments. Please tell us a little bit about each of these developments. Yeah, okay. Well, there's uh, there's probably a lot to say about, about each of them. Um, you know, uh, where to start? Let's start with the critical minerals uh, policy. And I, I think, um, you know, it was no secret that the government cared about critical minerals. They had released their critical minerals uh, uh, list and statements about the importance of these things long before. But um, I think it was the just permission for the acquisition of neolithium uh, was 
maybe sending mixed signals uh, externally and certainly garnered a lot of attention in Parliament um, and put the minister, I think, on the defensive. Uh, so I, you can imagine then the internal push uh, within the government to uh, tighten up how they're going to approach these things. And if you're going to tighten these things up, then you're going to need to provide some more uh, clarity. The divestiture orders, um, which depending on where you're sitting, you might say they were no surprise uh, uh, or they were very surprising. You know, I think some of the things to note about them is they were very small amounts. So in terms of quantum, it wasn't as though these were billion dollar uh, transactions. And uh, the location of the assets were, were not, in some cases, were not on Canadian soil. Um, some of the stakes, the, the the percentages of, of ownership are very low. And then, of course, the naming of names and, uh, and a declaration that we will continue to do this from the government perspective anytime that there is a cabinet order. And I think that's, um, you know, everything was significant about those series of decisions. I think the decision to name names really does uh, up the stakes, however, for proponents of these uh, who are involved in these deals, because... Um, you know, it's one thing if you're told, okay, listen, we're not okay, we're not comfortable with you, foreign investor, having a five percent stake or a fifteen percent stake in this Canadian company. So exit. It's another thing to say, and we're going to put out a press release saying that we don't like you. I don't know, just putting these in really, you know, plain terms. But we don't like you. We have, we think you're a national security risk, and uh, that's going to be available for the entire world to see. Um, that's a that's that's a challenging challenging prospect um, if it's not managed carefully. And then the um, the amendments in, in currently before Parliament, uh, those which I think came pretty run pretty close on the heels of all those other changes are really interesting because they get at what in my personal opinion is one of the challenges with the National Security Review um, that if you discussed with the investment review division and ultimately with the minister um, potential mitigation on on a on a deal um, or the establishment of a new business it's not doesn't actually matter which one it is and you know the the investor feels okay I can live with those and there's signals that it sounds like the investment review division and ultimately the minister are comfortable with that and then the minister uh, goes to cabinet. And then suddenly, if cabinet's not happy with it, then um, all of that careful work and calibration can just be tossed out the window because it's now uh, a, a blocking order or a divestiture order. Um, and that, that's a that's a difficult way to get, <laughs> to get around national security risk to just say um, no, the status quo forever because anything else is too risky is is challenging. So. Um, I think the some of the changes that are in that bill are going to um, are going to allow for a more fulsome discussion on mitigation uh, through the process, and I think that's going to be really, I think it's going to be valuable in the sense that there's no point in having a discussion that feels like a negotiation only just to be told no. Um, there was no chance because there's thirty thirty odd numbered other cabinet ministers who only get. 20 or 30 minutes to think about this file and they're going to read a frightening security analysis and then they're going to be told to make a decision and of course they're going to default to what um, feels safest uh, and which is it makes it easy to say no 
Um, so I think the, what's in C34 will be really important in that regard. And the other thing to note on those um, with the uh, sort of mandatory uh, notification now, and that's they're going to have to designate which sectors are going to be participating in this mandatory notification. I think that'll be really interesting to see which sectors they identify and then what happens on that for sort of a, a you know, pre-closing filing. And then you've got to, you've got to wait <laughs> and there can be these interim orders. And uh, I mean, you can see the government just trying to take some of the perhaps best practices that they see in other jurisdictions and try to apply them now in Canada, tune up the act. There's a, a lot to unpack there. Uh, so uh, maybe let's, uh, Let's uh, dig in. Uh, let's talk about mitigation uh, in particular. I mean, in theory, it's one of the potential outcomes. Uh, you used the red light, green light, uh, yellow light example earlier. But in reality, it hasn't really been used that much uh, to date. Uh, do you think that uh, the amendments in particular will allow uh, more deals to proceed on a conditioned basis as opposed to a binary uh, yes, no outcome that we've seen earlier? Yeah, I, I I think so, um, and I I don't think I'm being overly optimistic. I, it it looks uh, from the outside like the purpose of these is really to get around the internal challenge that any minister who's in that role has, and and it is as I mentioned. So if you can, you know, there's by the time you get to a mitigation discussion, you're you're well into a hundred plus days of of back and forth, and you're answering questions that 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 come from the government and there's people involved in this. And obviously the, with the interlocutors being the investment review division, who are going to have spent a significant amount of time, whether it's many, many hours or days at a time thinking about this file. And they're going to have looked at the concerns. They're going to have considered them. They're going to have looked at the answers uh, to questions and considered them. And then when you get to a mitigation discussion, then they're going to be thinking carefully about, can these concerns really be mitigated by X, Y, and Z? Um, when it goes to cabinet, uh, these you're, you've got people around the table who you know, and this isn't a this isn't a dig on cabinet ministers who work very hard, but they all have different portfolios, and they they have not spent hours and hours and days and days thinking about that particular file. So they're looking at the distillation of all of that work, but. Um, you know, if you're a, if you're the uh, sitting around that table as a decision maker, you're going to be you're going to want and you're going to expect that you're being given at least a, a, a full picture. So, you know, it's not going to suffice to say, uh, just trust me, you know, ministers around the table. This thing could have been injurious to national security, but we're good with it now. Just agree to these six things and uh, and we'll be fine. Reasonable people would say, "Well, but hold on. <laughs> what exactly were those national security concerns?" And let them practice. So, so in these materials that they would receive, it would articulate here are the concerns and why, and and uh, those can sound very disconcerting when you're reading them. And if you only get, as I mentioned before, if you only get twenty minutes, thirty minutes to think about it, um, or maybe less, depending on what how the day is unfolding. Uh, you know, if you're you're being asked to compress the amount of the time frame for consideration that other people in 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 ISAD and uh, and other departments have had the we'll call it the luxury of but I mean they're incredibly busy but at the least they've had time to devote to this 
So I think allowing the ministers, um, so Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry and Public Safety to, if they're the ones who are, who are really digging in on all the information and the considerations, it actually is not a terrible idea that they would be able to, in some cases, negotiate the um, undertakings that deal with national security concerns. Now, you, I, I expect there's still obviously the option for, uh, to take something to cabinet and for various reasons ministers may want to go back to cabinet because of the um, high profile nature of it maybe it's a really 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 tough call um, whether it can be mitigated you don't want to be the, the one minister flipping a coin making a judgment call on something right you want the backing of your uh, cabinet uh, if it's going to be really tricky but um you know, but at least if you're once these amendments are enforced, I, I think it'll allow um, IRD a little bit more freedom to be able to have conversations with the minister along the way, uh, have a sense of whether this could get to a place where mitigation solves the concern, uh, and then and then if it does, it, it, like if the, if the mitigation measures do solve the concerns, that they're going to feel more confident that when they send this up for final sign off, that it's going to get signed off rather than, um, you know, again, it's a bit of a gamble when you're going in front of 30 plus other people who haven't, you know, had that time to think about it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, earlier, you referred to high level statistics on completed reviews. One country in particular stands out in those statistics and the, and the investors in the three divestiture orders announced in November were also from that country. Do you typically advise clients that have ties to China or another country that would generally be perceived by the Canadian government as non-democratic, uh, such as Russia, that they need to approach ICA national security risk differently than investors from other countries such as the US, the UK, or the EU? Um, to approach them differently? Actually, I, I, I'd say no. It's just it's some of the concerns, it's a little bit more obvious, perhaps, if the investor is from I think that the term that the Canadian government likes is a non-like-minded country. Uh, so if they're from a non-like-minded country, um, then there's going to be uh, sort of another layer, right? If you've got, and, and you know, if you look through the statistics, there's some countries on there that people might find surprising. There's some EU countries. There's some, uh, you know, I think there's there's one or two references to the UK. There's, um, you know, there's there's different there's different countries that are not just China and Russia. Um, so, you know, there, you, you have to be really thoughtful and careful about looking at, um, potential investments or new, new businesses in the way that the security apparatus, the, 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 all the agencies, um, that are concerned about security matters within the government of Canada, you have to think about what are they going to be thinking about? And so, you know, one of the things that's that's emerging, uh, and many practitioners will run into this, is private equity, right? So you can have a, a private equity firm based in London, uh, great, but does that make it okay? Well, <laughs> you're, the the government is going to want to know what's behind that. Where's the who's who are the uh, who are the LPs? Where's the money coming from? What are the are there are there rights that are associated with the investors in this fund? Like it, they're going to want to know more information. It's not they're not just going to say, okay, well, the person who showed up came on a British passport, so it's okay. Um, they're going to want to dig in uh, a little more a little more deeply. And I think 
uh, I think that'll be true more often, quite frankly, as things evolve. Um, there was a story actually earlier this week about how you, there's a number of Chinese firms uh, listing in Switzerland. Like that's sort of their, their place because it's getting tricky in other spots. Well, you know, then what does that mean for Swiss companies, right? If, does that mean that they're actually from Switzerland or is it really a, a Swiss subsidiary of a Chinese company or subject to the influence, et cetera, et cetera. You can just see how, how it's a very dynamic, which I think is the best word to describe. It's a very dynamic uh, field, which I think, as you say, it's an exciting time to be practicing in that field. Um, certainly never boring. And so uh, there'll be, and there'll be more uh, dynamism to come, I think. On the word, uh, your use of the word uh, non-like-minded, uh, the press releases and statements uh, by government representatives accompanying ICA National Security Review developments since 2009 have tended to be careful to also stress that Canada remains open for business and welcomes foreign investment. The announcements and some of the political rhetoric surrounding the Q4 2022 developments in particular have included terms like friendshoring, like-minded democracies, authoritarian regimes, or non-like-minded countries. Do you think the developments of Q4 2022 are likely to have a chilling effect or to discourage foreign investment investment in Canada generally or from certain countries and or certain sectors? Um, well, I mean, there was a lot. So you mentioned smart tenants today. So last weekend in the beginning of this week was uh, the PDAC uh, conference and 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 that's always a, has always been a big event, and Canada's been a destination for mining investment for a long time. Um, but there there's been a lot of ink spilled on concern around what does this what did the developments um, at the end of last year mean for um, you know junior companies that were listing in Canada or that had a, just their headquarters here, and so um, will there be a chilling effect? I, I think. Uh, anything the government does carries that risk. Um, will it have a chilling effect in the long term? Um, you know that well, time will tell on that one. And and there's another question which I think is always important to keep in mind, since you know probably all of us here are, are outside of government who are, who are listening to this, um, is that the government's considerations are actually very different than uh, the rest of the 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 country in that sense, in, in, from an economic perspective. And I'll, I'll give an example of um, no, uh, not a national security related issue, but really closely adjacent. And it was the uh, policy on state-owned enterprises relating to oil and gas investments from, I want to say, 2012. And uh, that one, when when that policy came out, which said we're going to approve at the time is the CNOC Nexon transaction and uh, uh, progress uh, Petronas transaction, and so it was the these big, big, big um, foreign investment files, and they were allowed to proceed, but there was this line drawn in the sand, so to speak, uh, to far no more, and it will only be approved on an exceptional basis going forward. And if you look actually at that oil and gas uh, um, policy and some of the language around. Um, it will only be proved on an exceptional basis. And then you look at the critical minerals policy uh, that came up more recently, there's a lot of uh, congruence. And, and I think the, the logic is the same, but it wasn't because of national security at the time, uh, 11 years ago, 
it was actually uh, an economic um, basis. And so the concern was that it was going to chill investment in in uh, um, Canada's oil and gas sector. And of course, the 2014 crash in uh, crude prices did more to chill investment than than any uh, FDI policy change on the part of the government. But you know, as you look back, did was that um, uh, fatal in any way to Canada's oil and gas sector? So you look at them, and in my view, if you look at the macro trends that have been happening over the last ten years, no, there's other things that are far and more influential on whether capitalism is poured into the sector or not that have nothing to do with whether the government is going to permit state-owned enterprises to uh, to to invest. But at the time, there was this question loomed large: What will happen? Will there be a chilling impact? And uh, and at the time, the government was quite comfortable, explicitly, that they were fine with the chilling impact. We're telling you, we're not going to approve these except on an exceptional basis going forward. And so, it's, by design, this is intended to chill this type of investment. We don't want any more of it. So, anyway, long-winded answer uh, to say, maybe, uh, probably, uh, but we'll see what the long-term, you know, does. You mentioned the uh, political controversy following the uh, Zijin Neo deal. Uh, to what extent do you think that the uh, that politics, as opposed to pure national security concerns, influenced the critical minerals policy that followed that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the the policy, it, it, so I think the policy was probably going to be the policy regardless of what was happening in the political space. Um, the timing of it, maybe some of the framing around it, was it influenced by what was happening politically? Probably, yeah, I'm going to say yes, because it's not, you know, these are not hermetically sealed things, right? When public policy is rolled out, it's rolled out in a context where politics play, plays out. Um, so, you know, there was certainly, at the time, the government had come out with a, the critical mineral strategy uh, in its sort of early form. And it was at, and it said we care deeply about these things and and we're going to be you know we see there's a problem that uh, China has such market dominance globally in certain uh, minerals that are going to be essential um, and then and then Zijin Neo happened and I think there was people saying well, hold on you've got a policy you just you announced the policy fairly recently on the one hand and it seems like you're pretty casual about this on the other hand and um, so there was a uh, the political noise around that, I suspect, just focused some people's minds to say, "Okay, we need to we need to really wrangle this in a way that we can start acting, you know, uh, consistently across government." And if we're going to do something that's going to appear different, then we better start telling people and showing people that we're doing things that are different than than what you've done in the past. So I think they're intertwined, but um, I think the policy still would have been the policy if the political controversy wouldn't have happened. We just may, maybe it would have been delayed, maybe it would have been framed a little bit more uh, mushy in terms of the language, but. Got it. Uh, do you think it's possible or likely that some of Canada's allies, such as the U.S., privately expressed views to the Canadian government that may have influenced the critical minerals policy? Uh, for example, some U.S. Pol politicians publicly expressed their displeasure with Canada not using the national security review powers more aggressively in relation to the Norisat Hytera deal a number of years earlier. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very likely that um, that our allies to the south 
through whatever channels those may have been uh, probably all of six. Can you please explain this one? Cause we're not following, um, you know, especially since what you've seen since, uh, has been a real concerted push for moving kind of, uh, arm in arm with the U S in particular and, and other allies, right. Germany and UK and, and Australia. And, um, and, and yet <laughs> at the same time, we're, we also compete with the U S for investment and jobs, uh, and these kinds of things. So it's, a it's, you know, perhaps always how it has been, but, um, but there's been a real concerted effort to say, uh, you know, especially from Canada's perspective, Canada is not going to rival China in terms of economic clout, right? We just do not have the, the size to do it. So, um, you know, if we're going to do something, we need to do something in coordination with partners and we're going to think who those partners are going to be. And in this particular topic, it's pretty obvious who the partners are, will be for Canada. Many mining companies that are listed on the TSX Venture Exchange have a tenuous link to Canada. For example, the mine properties are in South America, and the only link to Canada is the TSXV listing. Essentially, the company's listed on that exchange because it and Canada are viewed as an attractive jurisdiction in which to raise capital. And this is the only thing that triggers ICA, National Security Review Jurisdiction. Uh, to what extent do you think the criminals policy will make the TSX be a less attractive jurisdiction for future companies that have not <laughs> that have yet to choose a jurisdiction on which to list. Yeah, I, I you know, th th this is a tough one, um, and mainly because not ever having run a company and listed on a, on an exchange, I've never really had to live the decision making process. But I can certainly appreciate, uh, especially as we would have seen last weekend. Um, when you know, the, the mining world came to Toronto, but um, it, yeah, it, it looms large, but I guess, let me, I, I would say this, um, and I, I, I say it to anybody who's sort of interested in, in listening, what Canada is doing on critical minerals, right, is, is notable for us because of course, uh, Canada as a country has a lot of the minerals um, and trying to figure out how to extract them in an economic way. Um, we've always had a significant role in the mining world uh, and want to, to continue to build on that. But we are not, uh, as a country, we are not the only ones with a national security review. And in fact, it's becoming table state, right? If you look, there's there's FBI regimes with a national security aspect popping up um, across the EU in the countries there. And a year ago, I think it was that the um, UK turned on their new national security uh, uh, and investment act, which is, has a lot of similarities to uh, the investment Canada act here. Uh, so because obviously they have a similar government architecture, like it's both Westminster democracy. So it makes a lot of sense, but um, the U S has had the fias in place for, for decades. And so there's um, this question of, well, would I just go list somewhere else? Um, it's not as though, I think an important thing to remember is um, Canada is not unique in having uh, a policy on these things and Canada is not unique in having tools that are, uh, enable them to, to enable the government to look at acquisitions and investments. Uh, and I think any jurisdictions that don't have one that are, you know, in sort of the, the, the Western sphere, uh, to use it just a, a blanket term, 
are they're standing them up and any that haven't stood them up already are likely going to be standing them up soon. So, you know, it's going to, it's, it, I'm not sure it's going to, Canada is going to be the outlier on, on those things, but for right now, then yeah, perfectly understandable that, that it's a, it, it's a really uh, tr- tricky decision-making process, right? Yeah. And then that applies not only to countries that are already here, uh, sorry, that, that are thinking of coming here, uh, but the companies that are already on the TSXV and may have, uh, be thinking of continuing into another jurisdiction to escape ICA jurisdiction. It sounds like uh, you know <clears throat> the floor is moving uh, in other jurisdictions as well, and they may face the same issue uh, somewhere else. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or at least you know, even if they don't today, right? If you were to look at where all the different regimes stand, um, we'll just pick the EU because you know I know that's another. Um, there's such a variety there, uh, but. You know, maybe today they don't have something that's that seems as robust or or challenging as the uh, Investment Canada Act, but that doesn't mean by twelve months from now that they won't. Right? It's uh, the, the this the sort of the global, as you say, the, the ground is shifting, and um, and that's happening, you know, all over the world. So, and uh, do you think it's fair to assume, and and it, it may just be a guess here, or an educated one, but that. Uh, the U.S. and is pushing pretty hard on other jurisdictions to make sure that they're it's it's they have their regimes in place pretty quickly so that they're there's it's hard to avoid uh, by forum shopping. Yeah, I, I mean, I so they the U.S. actually um, officials they're pretty open. They constantly are are sharing best practices in part because um, CFIUS has such a long history to draw on of you know here's how. Here's how CFIUS worked. Here's the way we've approached this. Um, but yeah, it, it actually, you know, it's in defense of the United States, and it would be true for Canada too, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, okay, well, we we see uh, an emerging technology or, or a legacy technology or critical minerals as sort of an existential threat. And so we're going to take action only to have your allies, perhaps unknowingly or just by because they're, they, they haven't been focused on it, say, well, well we're just going to, We'll do the exact thing that you said you wouldn't do. Um, if perhaps, right? If there needs to be good, better coordination, uh, or at least uh, consistent coordination, because likely their national security interests are not misaligned with Canada and so the United States. So, yeah, those conversations, you know, they, they've been open. The U.S. has been open. They're having them. Um, it's up to each country to decide what they're going to do. But if you're standing up a new uh, FDI regime, or if you're you're going to amend yours to be better um probably you it's not a bad idea to call up canada u.s and others who have a little bit more track record and say tell us about how you do it what works what doesn't what are your areas of concern and uh critical minerals are not like that area of just to go back to that uh topic but um critical minerals is not uh, an area of concern that's unique to Canada and it's not unique to the United States. Like you see Germany is doing a lot of work trying to, to secure agreements around the world. And um, I think the Chancellor was down in South America only a few weeks ago trying to sign agreements there. Um, so as the as the energy economy and sector evolves, it's going to become more and more important for more and more countries. Again, my two cents. Right. In 10 years from now, if I'm wrong, you can call me up and say you got it all wrong. So. I, I suspect I won't be calling you to say that. Um, but uh, 
Well, maybe this may be a time where we switch gears because we like to include in our episodes a segment that we call Overtime. And Overtime is where we take ourselves out of regulation play and explore some additional lesser known dimensions to our guests, including their personal interests and pursuits. In compliance with NHL shootout format, in our overtime segment, we take three shots at getting to know our guests a little better. So here goes, Phil. What's the most interesting country you visited? Uh, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with France, only because there's it's just you go to the the one corner, it's amazing. You go to a different corner, it's amazing for totally different reasons. The food, the wine, it's it's beautiful. Thanks. Uh, question two: What's your favorite recent book or TV series unrelated to politics? Unrelated to politics. I don't know if this one counts actually because it's uh, quasi-related politics anyway. But the the Apple TV has a series. Um, Low Horses, and it was a surprisingly uh, really great series to watch. Kind of the spy world, so I don't know, politics adjacent maybe. Interesting. Uh, last question: uh, What's the most memorable summer job you've ever had? Uh, memorable? <laughs> it would be tree planting, which I did for for many years, and it's a uh, it's an extreme job. It was a wet. Uh, you see a lot of things, and uh, you experience a lot of weather, uh, and you learn a lot about yourself. Thank you. Uh, coming back to the ICA, are you seeing a lot more national security scrutiny of certain types of investors and investments in terms of requests for information, extremely detailed requests for information, notices of extended initial review and notices of full review that you did not see even a few months ago? I'm not sure. I'm not sure months would be the time frame because I was actually in the in the prime minister's office looking at these from years ago. I will say, um, if you actually rewind the clock, uh, sort of eight, ten years, there it certainly is far, far more um, reviews that are initiated at the various at, at the various stages, and the request for information I think have gotten a lot. Um, in some cases, they probably have a template uh, for different sectors, but they've gotten a lot more detailed. Um, so you can tell the government is learning as it goes along what questions it needs to be asking. Uh, sensitive personal data is one of the factors identified in the revised 2021 guidelines. Many Canadian businesses hold some degree of personal data. To what extent are you seeing more scrutiny and or concern around personal data in particular? Yeah, uh, so that's a great one. I, I, I often, in any time I'm speaking about this uh, with what's on a panel, I, I, I use data as an example of um, how national security concerns evolve over time. Uh, I think in in 2012, if Uber had been subject to an acquisition from a non-like-minded country, uh, you know, it would have been viewed at the time as, oh, the, the, they're the taxi disruptor. Um, and now uh, it, it would 100% be reviewed and blocked as far as an acquisition um, because we've learned how valuable and important data is and what can be done with it. Right? So if you know that, um, you know, if I know that Ian is going from his office to the dry cleaner to the grocery store and then home on an Uber, big deal, right? Like, I'm, you know, not that we don't care about whether you're getting home safely, but, um, but if I know that the, you know, some future prime minister's senior advisor uh, is going from the office to perhaps a place where he or she shouldn't, 
um, or where it would be embarrassing to be found out, whether it's whatever that may be, um, that becomes very, very valuable data if I'm, you know, a foreign actor. Now, and that's just one really simple set relating to Uber. You know, nowadays with these large data sets, with the race on um, uh, artificial intelligence, which needs reams and reams of data uh, to feed the the machine learning, these things, there's so many more considerations around it. And can, can anonymous data set be anonymous? Or because in many cases, they there's, uh, I won't say it's easy because I don't know how to do it, but people who know how to do this, apparently it's not terribly difficult to um, de-anonymize data if you have enough. And so uh, it becomes a huge consideration for, for the government. Thanks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about transparency and predictability. When a new client comes to you at or near the outset of a potential deal or new establishment, do you generally think you have a good sense as to whether the investment is going to be allowed to proceed? Um, I mean, I, I, so we ask a lot of questions. So as one, you know, this, is, this will sound like I'm talking long use book, um, which I, yeah, I guess I am in some ways, but we ask a lot of questions in part because, um, so from my time in government, there's one of my colleagues who was the, uh, the, um, handled all those files under Navdeep Baines when he was the minister of, uh, uh responsible for ISTED, um, and, uh, and John Dubley, who was the director of investments for seven years, uh, the deputy minister at industry Canada. And then, and then I said, when it was renamed, um, we've, we've all seen a lot. And so, uh, understanding how the government thinks, and we, we ask a lot of questions in that process. Um, we generally have a, we think a very good sense of, um, how the review is, uh, is likely to unfold. What you can never predict, because it would be, I think it's tempting, but it's just not, you know, I don't think it's it's a it's a good practice to say, okay, well, yeah, you're you're for sure getting through, no problem, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen uh, in terms of events, uh, geopolitics, for example, or um, personalities might change, right? If you if you have a minister like the one, Minister Champagne has been in this role now for several years, and probably feels uh, like he's got a, a good amount of experience looking at these files under his belt. What if he resigns tomorrow? Right. And you have a new minister that's never seen a national security review file. Right. And that, the dynamic changes because um, you've got somebody this, for whom this is going to be a, a completely new experience. Same thing. The deputy minister who's there now, Simon Kennedy, has been there for, for many years. Um, and and as people change, right, that, you know, the, this, the system that we talk about in Ottawa is comprised of people. So those things can have an impact. So I you know, never I never get into the, you know, what's the percentage of likelihood of success is, as tempting as that is. Um, but we have a, we have a very good sense of where are the concerns going to lie and how can those be addressed and what's the best way to go about getting the government to agree to address them. Great. And, and when a national security review is ordered and a summary of uh, concerns is provided, do you think that the government generally provides sufficient detail for the investor to address the concern uh, or, or and could they legitimately provide more without jeopardizing national security while doing so? Yeah, I, yeah. The state, the, so the statement of concerns. That's I think probably for people who practice in this area is, is just one of the most frustrating things, right? Because you can sometimes get, um, you know, this general thing that the most, like the shortest, most general line. And I think that's how they used to be, and the government has tried to do to 
say more words. Um, but in using more words, they don't always give uh, better insight into where their concerns lie. And and I recognize there are, to your question, so do they give enough information? They'll never give enough information for the people who are on the receiving end of it, right? And and if they did give all the information, if there was a world where that could happen, probably a lot of the time would just be spent arguing whether that information is valid or legitimate or that concerns, you know, real. Um, but it, but but the, the reality is, and I appreciate this practical limitation they have, there's information the government has, which they just cannot say they have. And because doing so would reveal um too much about how they have it and like tradecraft you know if you're looking talking about foreign investors so um so if they say you know we're concerned about i don't know something to do with uh with with an individual they might talk about an individual but they may have information um about that individual that they actually don't want <laughs> they don't want um that person or anybody that they're associated with knowing they know so it, it is it, it's tricky. It's a balance. Um, and, and as a rule, they have to err, I think a little bit on the side of caution in their eyes, but it can be very difficult then if you're on the outside to say, okay, well, you say you're concerned about this general thing, but it could be any one of a dozen different specific aspects of it. So what is it? Um, you know, and, and, and that, that's where the, you know, the, the art meets the science, I think, in trying to navigate through it. Thanks. Uh, to, to what extent, if at all, do net benefit economic factors influence national security review outcomes, particularly in borderline cases? For example, if there was a deal that would involve Iran obtaining sensitive nuclear technology, I think it's safe to say that economic benefits would not have any effect on the outcome. But that's a pretty extreme example. What about cases where there's a weaker, even theoretical national security concern, but very strong and tangible economic benefits? Yeah. So, um, so if you've heard that the, at any point throughout the years, IRD speak about this, they will say, and they're right, that the National Security Review is about national security issues. And so economic considerations are not the focus of the National Security Review. And that is true. However, um, you know, the government is often is accused of being siloed, but they're not that siloed. So it does matter in the final, um, in the final calculation as to what happens. And I'll use an example, actually, from one where it's in the public domain for many years ago because the proponent decided to speak fairly freely about this in their local media. But there was, um, I'll get the year wrong, I think it was 2013, 2014, there was a, a, a Chinese firm that wanted to manufacture fire alarms and they wanted to set up a factory or the, the facility to manufacture these things um, in Quebec. And they had their location was actually um, recommended to them from uh, local officials, and it was right next to the uh, Canada Space Agency. So that was considered not good. So, uh, and this was all again they they disclosed all this. They, well, we were told we can't be here because we're too close to the to the space agency, and we have to find another location. Now, there's a in, in that situation, the, the government would have considered to say, well, we could just say, no, you can't establish this business because, but the, they're going to employ people and, and they're going to export these fire alarms. Apparently they were being exported um, back to China. So, you know, if you can find a location where you're okay with that, then 
is that really also bad? <laughs> right? Like it's like, they wanted to go to Gaff Bay. Is that a bad, is that a bad thing? Like, and so, um, you know, in the end, I actually, and truthfully, I don't know, I assume they did find a spot. I think they did and got that up, you know, uh, a while later, but, um, the economic piece, truthfully, the economic piece does factor into that consideration because it has to, right? Otherwise it's, otherwise you would just say no to everything. Like if you really purely looked only at the national security risk, um, the least risky thing is the status quo. So uh, it, it, why would you ever say yes to anything if not for the benefit of whatever this thing is supposed to be? This new economic activity or fusion of capital into a Canadian business, whatever it happens to be, the benefit is always economic. But yes, the concerns tend uh, the concerns about national security have to be addressed. So. Uh, you can't just say, well, yeah, they're going to, I don't know, they're going to be next to the building next to CSIS and uh, they're going to be sharing the server room. But boy, they're really going to put a lot of money into students, you know, and co-ops like that's not going to that's not going to cut it. You, got, you know, you need to you need to really address the national security issue um, so that whatever the economic benefit happened to be and the rationale for being there uh, for making the investment or the new business, um, you know, that that'll matter, but only once you strip away or address those pure concerns. Got it. Thanks. Uh, in its Indo-Pacific strategy released last year, the government contemplates strengthening relations with countries other than China in that region. Uh, but in the in the each of the last five years, China has been in the top five, often the top three countries of origin for investment in Canada, measured by number of investments. If the government discourages certain investments from China, how easy do you think it will be to fill the, the void with investments from other countries? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, it'll de it would depend. <laughs> like it's uh, I I you know um, I actually don't know how to answer that question well, and and I say that because um, China is not the only country to invest in Canada. And, and in fact, many investments from other jurisdictions that don't garner any attention. So it'll always look lopsided uh, when you look at the, at the staff in terms of countries where that are showing up in the, um, in the annual report for the Investment Canada Act. Uh, but if you get a billion dollar transaction or a billion dollar investment every month, coming out of the United States, just, does that offset uh, $12, $10 million deals that got blocked when they were coming from China? It's like, well, clearly, right? I mean, it would like it, it, the number it, as in the, the actual um, frequency of files, uh, it, it's tough to measure it just off that count because you can have these huge investments coming in one fell swoop from GM or I mean they they've announced a whole lot sort of in the EV space over the past twelve months from you know kind of household names in that in that area. So do those offset the three divestiture orders from those the uh, critical minerals files that we were talking about earlier, the ones in the fall? And probably most people would say, yeah, yeah, those those would. But they're they're totally different things, right? It's uh, will. Will those uh, three Canadian firms that had the divestor orders apply to them, will they find new investors? I think 
if I'm if I'm correct, at least two of the three have, or at least publicly, you know, they've announced that there's been other investors that have come in to replace the Chinese investment. So it seems like that's the case. Will it always be that way in all cases? Possibly not. Thanks. Uh, back to the proposed amendments to the ICA. It certainly doesn't appear that they're going to be rubber stamped as the bill makes its way through Parliament. Do you anticipate that the amendments will ultimately pass? And do you anticipate that any significant revisions will be incorporated along the way? Yeah, um, I do think that they will ultimately pass. Uh, I don't think that there'll be significant revisions. And, um, you know, credit where credit's due, they, they look pretty good. Like they look like they were drafted fairly thoughtfully. It didn't seem like there was uh, sort of that. Sometimes you get just an obvious oversight or, or an, something that's going to become a flashpoint. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. The debates around it so far, I mean, <laughs> debates are funny things in Parliament because there's you got to fill the time. And so sometimes you get people talking about really legitimate things like we're, where we see this as a deficiency of this bill and we're going to focus on it. And others, other situations, they're, they've been told you got to get up and speak for eight minutes, go. And so it's the, they're doing their best. And you can, you can discern a little bit as to um, how much there is there. And uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of substantive areas of concern, at least that have cropped up so far. Um, but I, I think they will get through and largely in the form that they are. Maybe there might be some tweaks, you know, here or there, but substantively the same. Great. Last question. And I'll send you a bottle of wine if your answer turns out to be accurate within one month, plus or minus. Any views on when the amendments may be passed? Oh, boy. Do you mean when they're passed by the House or when they get royal assent? Uh, well, let's go with when they come into force, royal assent. Okay. Um, I'm Okay. Then I'll say December of this year. I'm going to be ambitious. All right. We'll make a note of that and uh, yes. see if I have to pay up. <laughs> Well, Phil, uh, this has been very interesting. There are so many more issues and nuances that we'd love to discuss and more deeply, and we could go on for hours. But we've taken up enough of your time, I suspect. I'd like to thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights with the Counterfactual Podcast. We'll look forward to hopefully catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Phil. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. Counterfactual is produced and distributed by the Competition, Law and Foreign Investment Review Section of the Canadian Bar Association. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent those of their employer or other organizations. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to join the Canadian Bar Association, please visit www.cba.org slash sections slash competition dash law. 